Thank you, brother. <clears throat> I've come to think about the pastoral prayer like the rolls that you get at the table at Logan's before the food comes. It's, it's the, the stuff that fills your belly before you really begin to fill your belly. We're going to be in Malachi this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Malachi chapter 4. If you have trouble finding Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Or you can go to Matthew and then just flip backwards a couple of pages. This is our last sermon in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Fire can melt wax, but it can also harden clay. Fire is a fascinating element. On the one hand, fire can give life. It can warm our hands on a cold night. It can cook our food and kill the bacteria in our meat before we consume it. It illuminated the paths of our ancestors as they walked along in the darkness. But at the same time, the fire that warms our hands may also burn us if we get too close to it. The fire that cooks our food may also burn it to a char so that it can't be consumed. The fire that is a tool for life and sustenance can also consume us entirely. A fire that burns hot enough can even burn our bones down to ash. If you zoom out a little bit, out from your fireplace in your living room, out from the stove in your kitchen, even out from your city where factories with massive furnaces are harnessed and used to create life. Zoom all the way out into the solar system. There you will find a gargantuan ball of fire known as the sun. The sun gives life to the earth by keeping us warm, even in the winter, making photosynthesis possible for plants. It provides this big rock known as planet Earth with something called gravity. This big ball of fire gives us life. But it could also destroy us in a moment with a massive solar solar flare. Life and the utter destruction of life live in this same ball of fire a mere three planets down from us. Today's text follows the rich tradition of Scripture in picturing God, especially God in His coming judgment, as the sun, particularly as the rising of the sun. Habakkuk 3 says that God's radiance is, quote, like the sunlight, end quote. The psalmist says, The Lord our God is a sun and a shield. In Luke chapter 1, the song of Zechariah describes the coming of Jesus like this, He is coming to give His people the knowledge of salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. And just like the actual sun, the all-consuming fire that is our God can have different effects depending on which object He comes into contact with. 
The same fire can give life or destroy. Let's read our text. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb and for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Father, would you be with us this morning as we listen to what you have to say to us in your word. Amen. As we've already seen, and if you haven't been here with us, sorry, but we've already seen as we've walked through the book of Malachi, particularly in the fourth dispute, and we've also seen on Wednesday nights in our Bible studies at 645 that uh, fire is an image used all throughout the scriptures to describe the judgment of God in order to help you understand what the judgment of God is like. It's like fire. And then last week, we saw that the Lord promised to come and render final judgment, to bring justice to the land, to differentiate between the righteous and the wicked. You can look back and see that in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Today's text is just a continuation of this same line of dialogue between the Lord and His people. Last week, the Lord told the people that there was going to be a great day of judgment. And this week, in this text, the Lord is telling His people what that day of judgment will be like. And then last week we saw, excuse me, and this week we see immediately that it will be as if the Lord has turned the entire earth into an oven. You can see that in verse 1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. This oven will not be a life-giving oven. It won't be an oven that's used to bake bread to feed people. This will be an oven that is used to destroy evil. You can see that. It says that, That this oven will destroy evildoers and arrogant. It says that it will turn them into stubble or burn them as stubble. Now, when we think about stubble, we think about hair on a guy's face when he hasn't shaved in a little while. You know, the five o'clock shadow. But the people who would have heard this prophecy would have heard it in a different way. Stubble is an agricultural term. When you go and you clear a field of the crop, wheat, for example, and you cut down the stalk, the piece that's left remaining in the field at the end that you can't really do anything with is the stubble. And here, the Lord is saying that that's what these people will be like. Now, in what way? 
Well, if you know much about farming, and I don't, I just know a little bit, I know that stubble is it's hard to deal with. It's usually, usually the thicker part of the stalk, and it's rooted in the ground, and if you want to use the year next year, you've got to rip the stubble up. But that's a grueling task to go through and dig out and pull up each one of these pieces, each one of these stalks one by one. It's, it's just almost impossible. So the farmers do is they just set the field on fire, and they burn the stubble to ash. And here, this is what the Lord is saying that he will do to all of those who are arrogant. Now, you should know that in this verse, the, the words arrogant and evildoer, well, they're really just two words used to describe the same person or the same kind of person. You see, the reason why the evildoers do evil is because they're arrogant. They have no fear of the Lord in them. They don't revere His name. They have no desire to submit to His law. The humble man walks in the paths of righteousness. He turns his back on sinister and wicked ways, but not the arrogant. The arrogant man hears the word of the Lord and disregards it. The arrogant man looks at the law of God and scoffs at it. Now in this last chunk of Malachi, we see that there is a time for the arrogant man. The complaint of Israel is, God, why are you allowing these arrogant people to continue to thrive and exist? Why aren't you doing something about it? And here the Lord says, one day he will. Which means that there is a time for the arrogant and the evildoer to thrive. There's a time where they will prosper. Where they will continue to move forward unabated. But what this text tells us is that although the arrogant man has his hour the Lord and His justice will have His day. How does it make you feel to know that the Lord will come back and repay the arrogant for their arrogance? How does it make you feel to see a prideful person get what's coming to him? If you're like me, you probably enjoy it. You'd like to see it, right? I mean, I, think, I don't think that's all bad. I think there's a part of us that we, we still have the law of God written on our hearts, so we know that it's bad to be prideful. We know that it's bad to be arrogant. Why? Because, well, we're fallen, we're messed up, we're imperfect. It doesn't make any sense for us to be that way. And so when we see people act prideful and arrogant, we know that there's some aspect of their pride getting shut down that's good. Their humility is a good thing. About a month ago, Avid fight fans all over the world smiled when they saw the former UFC light heavyweight, excuse me, lightweight champion Conor McGregor being nearly strangled to death by his opponent, Khabib Nurmagomedov. And the reason why they were so happy to see Conor lose was because leading up to the fight, Conor was as arrogant as any man could be. He was loud and brash and boastful. He was mean and nasty in a way that kind of goes beyond the normal braggadocio that you would expect from fighters trying to sell this entertainment event. And so as the former champ sat slumped in the corner of the octagon after his embarrassing performance and subsequent defeat, the world looked and rejoiced in his forced humility. But what if Connor isn't the exception but the rule? What if arrogance and pride 
is just something that's natural to all of us? What if we are all the arrogant ones, the evildoers? The Bible describes the unconverted man as haughty, as self-exalting, as proud. The distinguishing mark in contrast to that, the, the mark of a person who's been saved, who has come to know the Lord, is that they begin to walk in humility. They no longer exalt in themselves, they exalt in God. They no longer boast in themselves, they boast in the Lord. He no longer sees himself as a king to be served by anyone and everyone, but rather as a servant to all. The entire point of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is that we might no longer boast. And that's why Paul, after spending 11 chapters teaching about this to the Christians in Rome, he asks this question. He says, where then is boasting? Where is your arrogance? Where is your pride? And the answer to that is obvious. It's gone back into the pits of hell with Satan, the ruler of this proud world. The arrogant man does his evil and he stands before the law of God with his chest poked up and out towards heaven in defiance. And that's why in chapter 3, verse 2, we saw last week Malachi asked this question, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? You see, the, the arrogant man doesn't bow the knee when the king enters the room. The arrogant man stays standing. And so the question is, when he comes back to render his judgment, who can stand? And the answer from today's text is no one. The arrogant and the evildoer will not stand. He will be burned up. The day is coming, says the Lord in verse 1, when His righteous judgment will set them ablaze. We've asked before in a sermon whether or not these fires that are pictured in the Bible of God's coming judgment, whether or not these fires are literal. And the answer that we gave was probably not. Usually when a metaphor is used, it's used to picture something greater than itself, right? You think about the American flag and all that it stands for, right? Democracy, freedom, all the great things we love about our country. Well, the, the flag can't really capture all that. It's an image that's kind of meant to give you a peek into it, but it can't capture it all. In the same way, these flames, this fire, it's meant to be a picture of something much greater than itself. But try your best. Just try your best to use your imagination and to consider the picture that the Lord is trying to paint for us with this metaphor of fire. Try to see in your mind's eye what the severity of this day will be like. Well, you don't have to use much of your imagination. He gives you an illustration here. He talks about a tree being burned all the way down to the roots. If you were to go out and find a tree, maybe even a dead tree. I know live trees don't really burn that well. If you go out and find a dead tree and you soak it in gasoline and then light a match to it and let it burn, and maybe you continue to pour gasoline on it to make sure that it keeps burning. And it burns and burns and burns until there's nothing left but ash. If you were to dig up the dirt around where that tree once existed, you would find the root still alive and well. You see, the fire doesn't get past the dirt. You can burn a tree down to ash and the roots will still be there. But in today's text, God says that His judgment 
will be so intense that the flames of his righteous gaze will be so penetrating that not only will the branches and the trunk of the tree be burned up, but so will the roots. That's what he says in verse 1. The day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. On the day that the Lord comes to separate the righteous and the wicked, the heat of His justice will turn the dry fields of evil in this world into one massive oven, burning so hot that not only will the branches and the stubble and the trunks be consumed, but the roots of the earth will be turned to ash. This is the picture of the justice of God. Our God is an all-consuming fire. His fire will consume the face of this wicked earth and obliterate anyone and everything that doesn't esteem His name. As the psalmist says in Psalm 21, your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And you will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing. And the strong shall become tender. And His work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. And again, see the Lord is coming with fire. And His chariots are like a whirlwind. And He will bring down His anger with fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with His sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people. And many will be those slain by the Lord. Before you're tempted to think that this is perhaps just the God of the Old Testament, you should know that the ministry of Jesus, as described in the Gospel of Matthew, sounds like this. I baptize you with, this is John the Baptist speaking, with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean to be baptized with fire? Well, he explains. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable the Apostle Peter says that by the same word that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this weighing heavy on you? It should be. This is the all-consuming God of the Bible. And He is coming in flames. Can you see now why the NIV, I love the ESV, we use it, but the NIV, I think it gets it right when it translates this from verse 5, it calls it the dreadful day of the Lord. Do you feel it? Doesn't this language bring dread? Shouldn't this picture give us a sense of impending doom? And yet it doesn't. 
the arrogant shut their eyes to the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ and they shut their ears to the Word of God. They sit on their cell phones and scroll through Facebook and social media instead of considering the Word of the Lord. They don't heed His warning. But shutting your eyes and closing your ears will not make this go away. It will only leave you unprepared. Why do you think God is telling His people about the terrors of that day? What purpose do you think that this serves? I think it serves two. The first purpose that I think it serves is I think it's actually meant to be a comfort to the people of God. And we're going to talk about that later on in the sermon. But I think the second reason why God says this is I think that this promise of judgment is meant to terrify the unrepentant people of Israel. That's who God's talking to. He's talking to the people of Israel. And we saw last week there's a righteous remnant who fear the Lord. They respond in repentance and obedience. But there's still a large chunk of people who belong to the people of God who are unrepentant. And I think that this is meant to induce fear in their hearts. Now, if what you're hearing me say is that God would try to scare people into following Him, I want to take a moment and tell you, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Parents, you do this with your children all the time. It's a totally reasonable thing to do. If there's something to be afraid of, you tell the person so that they would fear and move away from it. All the peoples of the earth should tremble at this word from the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're living in unrepentant sin, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. This is not something that's meant to allow you to feel comfortable living how you're living if you're not living for God. These verses are meant to call you to reconsider and reexamine the entirety of your life. And to ask yourself if you're prepared to meet the God who made you and the God who will one day come back and potentially destroy you. The most loving thing that God could do is to scare you if there's truly something to be scared of. You remember that massive fire that was raging through California several months ago? Uh, there was a video going around the internet of uh, a couple that waited a little too long to try to make it out. And so they were driving down the road in their truck as the fires were kind of overcoming them on, on both sides of the road in the forest. And as you watch that video, you could just see the flames coming out and licking the sides of the vehicle. Trees were falling, branches coming down, ashes were spurting out and I mean, it was terrifying. I, I realized as I was watching the video that I, I was holding my breath. I had grown anxious. My hands had become clammy. But then I just closed my computer. You know? These verses are meant to elicit in you something like that response. But on a spiritual level. It should be sweating. You should be breathing heavily. You should be considering your whole life. 
But see, the thing is, is just like I close my computer, you can close your Bibles. You can walk out of this church. You can never come back again. Man, you know, we got some visitors here this morning. Some of our, it's like all of our members who aren't here this morning are replaced by visitors. And uh, you can just walk away going, you know, wow, that church, they really, man, is this all they talk about? Hell and judgment and fear? That's not the friendly, happy place I want to be. That's fine. We don't always, you know, this is just what the text is about this morning. But, but we, if that's in the Bible, we're going to preach it. And you can just choose not to come back. You can go to a church where you'll never, ever, ever, ever hear anything like this. You'll hear things like God loves you and he doesn't want you to be afraid. God would never punish you. And you can just, you can just close that computer in your life. You cannot read the hard parts of the Bible. You cannot listen to your friends as they sit down with you and warn you about the coming judgment. You can just avoid it all. But you can't avoid it forever. What hope is there for this world then in light of this coming judgment? Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So we see here that the same sun that is our God, the same sun who will come and burn up the world with his heat, well, for those who fear him, the rays of his sun will fall on their head and shoulders like great comfort. The word wings here is just, it's an image for the rays of the sun used in the ancient world. Um, I despise winter. I despise it. I hate every last second of the cold weather. I half want to move to Arizona just so I don't ever have to endure another winter ever again. And I live in Alabama, not Maine. My absolute favorite time of year is the first day of spring, right? It's, now I don't mean on the calendar, I mean the first day where you really feel spring, right? Where you step outside and instead of feeling cold, you feel the sun falling down on you. And you can just feel the warmth of the sun bringing your cold, achy joints and bones back to life. It's a great day. I may not look much like a baby cow standing here behind this pulpit, or maybe I do. I don't know. But I bet you if you see me on that first warm day of spring, I'll look exactly like this, what the text says. Like a, like a calf being let out from the fences and being free to go and frolic in the field. That is what the sun will be like on the day for those who fear the Lord. But it will be infinitely greater than that. In the same way that fires cannot fully capture the terror and the dread of the judgment of God. This picture of a cow being led out into a field, running around, enjoying the green grass on a warm spring day, it is nothing compared to the joy that we will experience with God forever. My only hope in life and death is that I will get to go and be with my God and my Savior Jesus Christ and that I will feel the warmth of the rays of His love fall down on me forever and ever and ever. And it will never go away. It will never stop. There will no more be any pain or suffering or sorrow. No more discipline as a child. 
just the warmth of his love. But that's only for those who fear the Lord. It's only for those who esteem his name. See, if you don't love the Lord, you won't want to be in heaven because that's where God's going to be. On top of that, I think what we see here is that here's the, here's the comfort aspect that I told you we were going to come back to. I think there's a sense in which we will be satisfied to triumph over the wicked. I think you see that in verse 3. Look there. It says, And you shall tread down the wicked. So the sun comes and it burns up the stubble. The farmers then go out and step on the burnt stubble, the burnt stalks left in the field, and, and crush them down. You tread it down. That's what you do after you burn it. And here it says that that's what God's people will do. They will, they will step on the burnt stalks. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. Now this might seem kind of cruel to you. This may kind of seem like what kind of sadistic person would be comforted in the idea that they're going to step on somebody's ashes. The idea that they're going to tread down their enemies. Well, at this point, I just want you to consider how good your life is. You live in America. You're a Christian. You're a Christian in America. You have more freedom than almost anybody else on earth. You have more joy, more comfort, more luxury, more care. You suffer less persecution than almost anyone else on planet earth. So this idea that somebody might oppress you and bring injustice against you and persecute you in such a way that you would rejoice to crush them, it's, it's a concept that maybe doesn't really resonate with you. But just try to imagine yourself as one of the widows or the fatherless children or one of the hired laborers that we've already talked about from Malachi who were being taken advantage of by the unjust. Or try to imagine yourself being a Christian in modern-day Eritrea. Imagine being this woman, Asia, and her name is Asia, and she's in Pakistan, who was imprisoned for 10 years for refusing to convert to Islam. Imagine being a Christian in North Korea where even possessing a fragment of the Bible will have not only you, but your children and your parents and your grandparents all put into a concentration camp. Does that make sense to you now? Does it bring you any sense of comfort if you imagine yourself in that position? I think it should. I think it would. Evil and injustice will not live forever. The children of God who are being trampled on here and now in this life, on this earth, can and should have great hope. Great hope that they will one day walk on the ashes of those who hate them and hate their God. Now, you'll remember that the difference between these two camps is that one fears the Lord and one doesn't. One esteems the Lord and one doesn't. So the question then is, how can I make sure I'm in the right camp, right? How can I make sure that I fear the Lord, that I esteem His name? Well, I think the answer is, is simple. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. 
Mount Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, where God gave the law to his people. And the answer here is that you need to remember. You need to remember the law. Remember God's word. Remember his commands and decrees and ordinances. And this is not the first time that the Lord has told his people. It's more like the 15,000th time that the Lord has told his people that they need to remember. As they were preparing to enter the promised land, he said, remember that I rescued you out of Egypt. Remember the 40 years of wandering. Remember how I tested you. Remember what I have commanded you. Remember the days of old. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God knew that the joy of his people was deeply rooted in remembering. So much so that he even set up feasts and holidays in order to be annual reminders for them so that they wouldn't forget, at least on a yearly basis. That's what the Passover was. It was a way for them to remember their great salvation. God knows that we're prone to forget. But our eternity depends on us remembering. So how do we do it? I'm going to give you two answers. One is a little bit more practical. It's kind of on the surface level. And then I'm going to give you another answer. It's a little bit deeper, heart level, theological level. First answer, surface level, pulled directly from Psalm 119.11. David says that he has kept God's word in his heart so that he may not sin. So the way that he remembers is by storing up. Well, how does he store up? Well, he says, if you just keep reading, in verse 15 it says, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So the way that he remembers is by being intentional. If he wants to remember, and he does, he meditates. He fixes his eyes on intentionally. So the kind of practical application question for you then is, are you doing this? Are you being intentional in remembering the word of the Lord and fixing your eyes on him? Are you storing up his law in your heart? Are you, are you reading your Bibles? God, this is just, I don't have anything super special. To, eh, you know, I, I, this won't tickle your ears. This is kind of like Christianity 101. Are you reading your Bibles? Do you have a Bible reading app on your phone that maybe can let you know first thing in the morning? I'm about to restart the Cultivate emails. Make sure your email is on the list. You'll get a little devotional that me or one of the elders writes up and you just read a chapter of the Bible. Just, are you reading the Bible? Are you coming to church? Guys, every Wednesday and every Sunday, God's Word is the central thing that we look at in this church. We meditate on God's Word. That that whiteboard is over here and it's literally in the middle of the room and every time I ask you a question, I'm trying to point your eyes back to it We're we're intentionally looking at Jesus and focusing on his word together, meditating on it. On Sunday mornings, I don't know if you've noticed, but the contents of Russell's prayer and my prayer, full of scripture, the songs we sing, all rooted in God's word and his law. We read God's word, large chunks of it. I preach from the Bible. You may find that boring. It's the only thing that gives life. If you find it boring, you may not be a Christian. Maybe a better preacher would help, but you get what I'm saying. This is what we do. We we focus on God's word together corporately as a church so that we, as Sixth Avenue Church of God, don't forget so that we fear the Lord and we esteem his name. If you don't do this, you will forget. I promise you. 
not only will you forget God's law, but you'll also forget His grace. You stop coming around and the memories of your suffering under sin will begin to fade away. Like a woman in an abusive relationship, you will forget how terribly your sin treated you. You'll forget how sweet salvation was when you first tasted it. You'll forget the 10,000 blessings on your life that you have received from the hand of God. The world is set up to make you forget. The ubiquity of the news media that is drawing you in everywhere you turn. Social media that lives in every corner of your house and even these days, your heart. The demands of your busy schedule. This modern age will keep you rushing from one thing to another, from soccer practice to work to this, that, and the third, and it'll never give you time to stop and consider, to be intentional about focusing on your God. Your work, your hobbies, your family, your sleep, your entertainment, it will slowly overtake you like lava. And you will fail to make time for God and His Word. God is so serious about us, even in the New Covenant, He's so serious about us remembering that He gave us more institutions to help us remember. That's what the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper is. right? Jesus said, take this bread in remembrance of Me. After He explained how the wine was like the blood of the New Covenant, He said, as often as you drink this, drink it in remembrance of Me. This, this upcoming Sunday at the members meeting, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to come together as a body and remember This might be discouraging to you. It's a, it's a weighty thing to consider how hard life is and how easily we fail to do the things that help us remember. And in one sense, you're right, it is, a, it, it, you know, it is impossible. In, in one sense, it's not impossible at all. It's just a matter of priority. Every single person in this room prioritizes the things that they care about. But in another sense, it is impossible. Because remembering is not a head issue. Remembering is an issue of the heart. The heart is what gives our minds its priority, our minds their priority. And this is the theological answer of how we remember. You see, the Israelites of Malachi's day didn't need nootropics. Those are supplements meant to help increase your brain activity. They didn't need mnemonic devices or calendar reminders. What they needed was a heart change. That's exactly what God promises. Look at verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So we saw already that this Elijah that's coming back, we understand that to be John the Baptist in the New Testament. We see this specifically in Luke 1.17. It says, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. But listen to what John the Baptist says, what, what is said about John the Baptist. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Same language, same language. So Elijah that's promised, it's John the Baptist. Now that might be confusing you a little bit. You just might be overly, literally trying to understand this prophecy. John the Baptist came like in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah. 
And his main role was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, who did bring reconciliation, who did what was promised in this text, who turned the hearts of the fathers back to their children and vice versa. Now, you can also get a little lost here in understanding this promise of turning the hearts and the of the fathers to the children and children to the fathers. You might kind of interpret this overly literalistically. You might understand this to mean that God is going to fix broken families. And that's true to some extent. But that's not the great heart of the big promise of the coming of Jesus, that, you know, fathers and sons won't fight anymore. This is really the language of reconciliation. So try to imagine... Well, there's any number of pictures you can use, but one of the easiest pictures of life in a fallen world is a broken family, right? It's a microcosm. What does a world look like that's been damaged and broken and marred by sin? Well, it looks like a father who hates his son and a son who won't talk to his parents. It looks like a broken family. And here, the promise is that the Lord Jesus will bring reconciliation. What does reconciliation look like? Well, it looks like the story of the prodigal son. A son who hated his father and spurned his... I mean, when he said, I want my inheritance, his father was still living. So it was basically like he was saying, I don't care whether you live or die, just give me my money so I can go. But the son coming back, And the father lifting up his robes and running to him and embracing him and then celebrating with a big feast. That's what reconciliation looks like. And that's what this promise is. Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, came and not only obeyed the law, he didn't have to remember it because he completely fulfilled it. And he instituted the new law, the law of Christ, the law of love. So now we no longer look to Mount Sinai, to see the fullness of the love of God, we look at Mount Calvary. Our only hope of reconciliation to each other and to God is not found in obedience to statutes in the Torah, but rather in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God living in our hearts. Keeping our eyes focused on the perfect law of God as seen most clearly in the life and ministry and the commands of Jesus. Remembering these things will keep our feet firmly planted as we scan the horizons and wait for the day of the coming of our Lord and Savior. Staying focused on what Christ has done will sustain us as we wait for what Christ will do. Now, in closing, four times in today's text, the people of Israel are told to consider that day that day, that day, that day. That's the day of judgment. What you should know, friends, is that when Jesus came and he initiated this act of reconciliation and then accomplished it, he began that day. The son of the day of judgment rose when Jesus Christ arrived to the earth. And it is now in the process of setting and it will fully fall on the day that he comes back to finally and fully render judgment. And that might happen at any moment. I imagine a common objection to what I've said in today's sermon might go something like this. Sean, I could never believe in this God. I could just never believe in this kind of God. Not my God. My God would never burn people down to ash. He would never judge people like this. He 
forgives people. He's loving, he's kind. He would never send people to hell. And ultimately, that's what this is a picture of. It's a, it's a picture of hell. And to that I would say, you're right. Your God would not do that. But the God of the Bible will. Jude says that the punishment will be like an eternal fire. Jesus gives us a parable of a man who suffers consciously forever in hell. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that these will go away into eternal punishment. Revelation 14 says that the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and ever. Now, the God that you serve may never do these things. But if you call yourself a Christian, you have to ask yourself whether or not the God that you serve is the God of the Bible. And if you, if you say, like I've said before, okay, this is hard. This picture of God is a hard picture of God to accept. But I'm going to believe the Bible. I'm going to trust what God has revealed about himself in his word. And I'm going I'm to take him at his word. Then you should also know that this is not the only thing that we see of God in this text. He's not just a God of justice and wrath. He's also a God of great and tremendous mercy. When God describes himself to Moses, he says, I forgive sins and I punish sins. God is so gracious and kind. Even here you see that he's extending this offer of salvation before he brings his judgment. God sent the prophet Jonah out to Nineveh to offer salvation to them before he went and utterly decimated them. Well, how can this be? How can God be a God of justice and a God of peace and mercy and, and patience and kindness? How can he punish sin and let sinners like us go? Well, the answer, friends, is that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, the perfect justice and wrath of God and the perfect mercy and grace of God collide. Jesus Christ took the wrath that we deserve on his own head so that we who deserve to go to hell forever don't have to. We can get to go and be with God. And he's not demanding anything of you in order to do that. You don't have to pay a certain amount of money or do a certain amount of good deeds or attend church a certain amount of services. You just have to turn away from your sin and turn to Him in faith. Do you know why the world is not already consumed? It's because God is patient. Every second of every hour of every day is an extended deadline in the courtroom of God. He has His gavel lifted raised high and heavy in his hand. And it is ready to fall at any moment and ignite the tinderbox of this fallen world into flames. But he waits patiently. And he's calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him, even this morning. He calls the church to go out and to preach the gospel to all the lost, to all the nations, to bring in as many people as possible before this great and terrible day of judgment comes. He's so gracious. If you look, you'll see that today's text in verse 6, it, it ends with a choice. It says, Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
Hearts need to turn back to me or I'm going to come and destroy. It seems fitting then for me to end today's sermon with that same choice. What will you choose? The sun is setting even now. How will it find you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing all of yourself to us in Scripture. And we glory in every aspect of who you are. We praise you for all of your attributes. And we thank you for your mercy and grace. Amen.